Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. There's a number of persons of interest that still are the same people as they were at the very beginning of the investigation. In a typical criminal case, the first entry will be either a criminal complaint or an indictment. And before we go any further on this thread, I want to openly acknowledge that we're getting into a highly speculative area. I hate to say it, God, doesn't look like this is anything more than a continuation of the dog and pony show. This is episode 14 of season one, The Art of Being Right. I'm your host, David Payne. Tonight, we are talking to two independent journalists. was recently the subject of a podcast. They're investigating the Wales murder in a new podcast called Somebody Somewhere. We believe their own investigation is what has drummed up new interest. The FBI is like a dog with a bone. Once he gets that idea of that bone in his mouth, you can't get him to look at you, you can't get him to roll over, you can't get him to sit, because he's convinced that that bone, they get something in their mind, and they don't want to be wrong, nobody wants to admit a mistake, and I mean, they got me out of prison to help them, and I killed four people, they had never said that was a mistake on their part. That was Scott Lee Kimball, the infamous serial killer and con man we interviewed in episode 10 last year. Kimball's locked up in Colorado for life as part of a fraud plea deal that did away with those four murder charges and spared the FBI the public embarrassment a trial would have shed on their culpability in those deaths. And as we turn the page on the latest developments in the Wales case, I am both reminded of these prescient words from a sociopath and concerned about their foreseeable implications. Which brings us to the latest news in this case. In a story following on the heels of our last episode, the Seattle Times gives us three new pieces of information from their federal sources. First, the feds have now confirmed our reporting that Shauna Reed, the mother of two who has been indicted for lying to the grand jury about conversations she had with suspect one, was indeed connected to the man whose phone was seized in a 2015 extortion case. As a reminder, Here's the lead we were pursuing last episode. A relationship between the woman indicted in the Wales case for lying to a grand jury and a convicted extortionist whose name we bleeped and who, for clarity, is not the pilot. What thread I'm trying to find is any connection between and Reed. Why do you think the is connected with her. They're both from the same area. They were both living in Everett. 
I'm trying to dig. I have a theory. I'm trying to connect it, but it feels like it all fits within the timeline. And I know you had thought that maybe the connection was in a bar, but I'm wondering if he was cruising her on Facebook and that's where this dialogue was happening. And wherever the alleged bragging about the murder of a judge or attorney on a hill took place, Jody's instinct was right. Sometime between 2012 and 2015, more than a decade after Wales was killed, there was some kind of personal relationship between Miss Reed, a woman who had recently lost a child to a drowning accident, and this man, who he will refer to by his initials C.G., who was convicted of extorting a different woman he had slept with in 2015. C.G., you may recall, claimed he had a video recording of this other woman and him having sex, and he threatened to send it to the woman's husband, her employer, and her children's school if she didn't pay him $1,000 a week. And following our reporting of this connection, the feds have apparently felt compelled to release another new detail to point out where we got it wrong. Through the times, the unnamed federal sources now say that CG is not suspect number one in the Reed indictment, as we speculated, but is merely a close friend of suspect number one, the guy who allegedly bragged to Miss Reed about being involved in the murder of a judge or attorney general. Suspect number one, according to these federal sources, is a 50-year-old Snohomish Washington man, and the feds believe he, not the extortionist CG, was the hired hitman. But because there is apparently little or nothing tying the Fed's prime suspect, the pilot, to this small group of three friends, CG, suspect number one, and Shauna Reed, the Feds told the Times they are now looking at the possibility that the pilot used an intermediary to hire suspect one. Now, whatever your gut tells you about these latest confusing details, a couple of things should be clear. First, arresting this woman, who was just 16 years old at the time of the murder and obviously had nothing to do with it, for lying about a conversation she had with a friend who made some vague references to being involved in the murder of a judge or attorney on the Hill, is more emblematic of desperation than it is of a true break in the case. Second, this arrest is also a sign of the tremendous pressure the feds are under from the family and public to show they are still moving forward in the case. All that's to say that you can reasonably expect additional indictments for false statements, conspiracy, and obstruction to be unsealed soon. At least with regards to the three friends, if not the pilot himself. Probably in the coming weeks and perhaps even on the anniversary of the Wales shooting in October. But whenever the FBI starts taking its victory lap, and says they are convinced they have the right people now, a skeptical listener might want to recall the other documented times the FBI was equally convinced of an alternative theory of the case. They know I purchased the Makarov after the murder because we talked about it. The purchase was after the FBI told me that a Makarov was used to fire 380 shells to kill whales. I wanted to see if a Makarov would fire 380 shells. Remember Bruce McClung, the pilot's friend and mentor? The guy living out in the 500-square-foot cabin in the woods with a cache of loaded firearms at the ready? 
In an effort to prove he was the hired hitman, the feds seized his car, tapped his phones, subpoenaed him to multiple grand juries, and even put him in front of the incoming Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, so that his credibility could be personally assessed. Here's one of the entries from McClung's memo diaries. The FBI later accused me of maybe shooting Tom Wales for hire. While I was home with Mary on the night of the murder, the FBI has been hound-dogging me. I think I have now become a suspect as they keep telling me they think Steve Jackson set me up. I did not want to be implicated in the murder because I did not have anything to do with it, either the planning or execution of it. The feds were similarly convinced that Albert Kwan had sold a replacement barrel to the pilot. They locked him up on a material witness warrant for 23 days, raided his house, and shut down his gun-dealing business to get him to flip. But those efforts, which never bore fruit, pale in comparison to the FBI's absolute conviction that the gun used to kill Wales was a Makarov, a position that was no doubt influenced by the fact that McClung had told them their prime suspect owned one. We took on projects that have never been done, at least from my knowledge, in the Bureau before. Give me an example of a project that's never been done. The Makarov Project. The Makarov Project was the code name for the FBI's 18-year-long nationwide quest to try to tie the pilot to a specific aftermarket Makarov replacement barrel, a quest that initially required a huge leap of faith because an off-the-shelf Makarov leaves six left markings on casings, and the crime scene casings were four right. So, the FBI theorized, the pilot's Makarov must have been retrofitted with one of only 2,600 Federal Arms replacement barrels ever created to make that match. That now means the FBI, which seems institutionally incapable of admitting a mistake, will either have to admit they were wrong about their analysis or convince a jury that the pilot, this super-careful murder planner, gave his own personal gun to an intermediary to give to the hitman, who, oh, by the way, was good friends with an extortionist. So now we have a minimum of a three-person conspiracy being floated, and a shooter with loose lips with an extortionist for a friend. And yet no one has cracked despite $1.5 million in reward money, which seems a lot more improbable than the more pedestrian evidence of greed and corruption which we surfaced in this podcast. And not to get too Malcolm Gladwelly here, but all this contortionist work by the feds to make the evidence fit the prime suspect and thus prove they were right all along does have a scientific basis. I don't personally believe there are bad motives here. But I do believe the investigators, like all humans, are biologically programmed to avoid admitting mistakes. And for true medical insight on what may really be at play here, here's how neuroscientist Dr. Dean Burnett describes it for Jill Cox Cordova's aptly named podcast, I'm Right, I'm Right. When I requested this interview with you, I told you that my husband and I have a podcast called I'm Right, I'm Right, and we genuinely believe that we're right on certain topics. So with your expertise, why do people need to feel that they're right? Is the brain wired that way? Yes, um, I think uh, saying it's wired that way is probably a very, a very revealing term to use in that 
I think you can look at the fact that you know uh, the average adult human brain is the product of both nature and nurture. You know, it, it's obviously it's got all these internal processes which keep us alive, keep us thinking, keep us functioning. But the structure of the brain, the way it's laid out, that's the result of experience and learning. So all this amounts to sort of like a mental model of how the world works, which is the result of your life of experience up to that point. But of course, it's not going to be perfect because no one person can experience all the data, all the complete facts at any one time. So the brain has to pick and choose. It has to prioritize certain things amongst other things. It has biases and priorities which don't necessarily match up with cold, hard facts. So there's a thing called information bias, whereby you will think and do the things which are more likely to get you accepted by the people around you rather than what's actually true. They've done studies about these people will sort of go against their their better judgment uh, in order to not rock the boat or be excluded from the group because we're such a social creature. And anything which makes us think, all the things we think, the the basis of our assumptions and our decision-making, if someone tells us that is wrong, that's not very comfortable. That causes stress, that causes anxiety, that causes you know, serious self-doubt. And as a result, we sort of try to defend that. The brain is sort of reflexively says, no, I'm not wrong, because if, if this is wrong, then everything I've thought up to this point is flawed and incorrect. That makes me a sort of an inferior person. That makes my decisions all incorrect. That suggests I've done so many things wrong. The consequences are too profound in many ways. And no one wants to feel inferior, me included. So the question is, are any of us right about what actually happened? And if it's the FBI, with their latest theory of the pilot using an intermediary to hire suspect one to kill whales with his Makarov, then ironically, the feds will be able to leverage one nagging piece of evidence that they had largely discarded years ago. Remember the Gidget letter from episode eight? The mysterious letter purportedly written by a hired hitman and mailed to the FBI from Las Vegas four years after the crime. With these latest suggestions by the feds that an intermediary might have been used to hire the hitman, and taking into account the FBI's apparent belief that the pilot's Makarov was used in the killing, let's listen to what that letter said again. Okay, so I was broken between jobs. I got an anonymous call offering money to shoot the guy, so I drove to Seattle to do the job. I did not even know his name. Just got laid off from a job. Nice-talking lady... I didn't know her name. She called me, talked to me by name, and asked if I needed some money. I agreed to pursue the matter. Hell, I was going bankrupt. Go to Seattle. Heck, I lived there once. No big deal. Hang out in this guy's backyard. She even gave me the address. Stop off at a place, pick up our gun, and drop it off at a specified location when you are done. Then, you will be directed to where your money is. The wife was out of town. I had no witnesses here. I was curious about who knew me so well. I used cash to pay for all my expenses to avoid an audit trail. No cell phone. I was directed to a place to pick up the gun they wanted me to use. And an address. The gun was there. I drove to the address and then parked some distance away, north of downtown. I kind of camped out in the backyard of this house and waited for the guy to settle in at his computer. Once he was there, I took careful aim. I shot two or possibly more times and watched him collapse. I absurdly waited a few minutes and then left. 
I was sure he was dead. Retracing my steps, I dropped off the gun, found my money, and returned to Vegas. I feel bad about it, but I needed the money, and there were no witnesses. I really don't know who fronted the money, but the money was there, and I sure needed it. This letter was originally believed to be a diversionary tactic by the pilot, but don't be surprised if it resurfaces to explain how it came to be that the hitman used the pilot's gun. In fact, this letter could be the basis of the FBI bringing charges against the pilot's girlfriend, the woman who went with him to the movie the night of the crime, a woman whose identity has never been disclosed and whom we will refer to by her initials, R.R., Here again, though, in order to make that charge with a straight face, the FBI will have to admit they were wrong in the first place about the author of the letter and its veracity. Here's what FBI ASAC David Gomez told us last year about the letter. I do recall that the investigative team did not believe the letter. They thought that perhaps their primary suspect had manufactured that letter himself as a means to provide himself with an alibi or an alternate theory as to how the uh, homicide occurred. And while the FBI may very well be likely to tie itself into knots to make all the pieces work to indict their prime suspect, I was having a harder time understanding why the Fourth Estate, in the form of the Seattle Times, the people who are supposed to be the skeptics in these situations— seems so willing to take the ever-shifting stories from their official sources without apparent challenge. And for insight on why, I would need to enlist the help of a former colleague. My name is Mitch Gelman, and I work for the PBS and NPR stations in central New York. Previously, I was a police reporter in New York City and worked as an investigative editor at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. You're also an advisor to the Somebody Somewhere podcast, I should mention. I think that's a disclosure that is well worth uh, well worth. <laughs> and the former executive editor of CNN.com. So you know this. How this Gelman is a journalist journalist who I've worked with on and off for many years. But I was genuinely surprised at what he told me about how he had to manage his law enforcement sources and the impact of that management on the reporting of crime stories. You know, the difference between a lot of professions and in journalism is that there are in a lot of professions more strict and codified guidelines. As a journalist, there are certainly ethical considerations, but every journalist has to define what that means for him and herself or for his or her organization. So Gelman literally wrote a book about cultivating police sources as a rookie reporter. And what he is describing for me explains a lot about some of the reporting we've seen on this case. As a police reporter, I used to have a rule of thumb that I would follow. And my job is to provide as much truth as I can over the course of a year. And I said the course of a year because. I felt that that was a fair bracket. And what I mean by that is that if I believe that by writing something today, I would be able to get better information to our readers two months from now, 
I was comfortable making that trade-off as long as it was official and not necessarily harmful to other individuals. There were times where I think that I would write something that could build credibility or trust that would lead to greater information, deeper information down the line. Basically, don't piss in the pool if you got to get back in it. My words. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to think. I'm trying. I'm trying to think that one through, uh, Mr. Payne. Yeah, you, you can. You can no comment. Not, Let's I, see. I'm, see, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's like don't piss in the pool if you've got to get back in it this summer. But at a certain point, you got to piss in the pool. Let's have to decide when that is. The Mitch Gelman rules. There we go. And I felt like we were witnessing exactly this type of non-pissing between the Times and their official sources. Because clearly, these latest leaks about a multi-headed conspiracy with some loose lips and a serial gun handoff to boot had to have caused some pause in veteran reporters Mike Carter and Steve Militesh. So there has always been a tension between law enforcement and the media. So what you have to do is build trust. It's like building any relationship, whether it's a a relationship that you would build with a friend. These are relationships. And one of the things that I always found about law enforcement officials is that they are some of the most loyal people you are ever going to meet. That once that trust is built, they will do anything for you. And in return, they rightfully would expect that loyalty to be a two-way street. I think what has been bothering me about these relationships in the context of this particular case is it seems like those bonds are so strong that the media is taking the words of those sources and not challenging them in any way, almost printing them whole cloth. I'll give you an example. In this latest article, The Times says the FBI opened the separate drug trafficking investigation into the man based on evidence found in the extortion case that indicated he might be illegally distributing oxycodone. So all you had to do was look at that affidavit for that search warrant on the phone, and it was obvious that that search warrant had nothing to do with a drug trafficking investigation and everything to do with making sure they had that phone and were able to search that phone. So I guess what I would ask you is when you read something like that, where you know that that's BS, you know the the reporters know that that's BS, and yet they spit it back out to us as fact. How do we translate that in the world that we live in? That's a good question. And, and I think that without commenting specifically on that case, I think that It's fair to say that once a source is developed, that becomes a reporter's bread and butter. A reporter, particularly a law enforcement reporter, is only as good as the information that he or she has access to. When I worked at the Seattle Post Intelligencer, I had a chance to work with Steve Militech, and he is an excellent reporter, has deep sources within the law enforcement, legal communities throughout Seattle and the state of Washington. So in this case, that's a classic example of law enforcement 
using the press to convey their point of view. But it is a two-way street. And in exchange for that, what the reporter would expect in return is that when the agency has a break in the case, that they're going to give that information to what they would consider their reporter first. And that's what we're in right now is this kind of exchange where the Times is reporting sources say, sources say, sources say, and we've been able to go out and not really care about burning a relationship because we don't have one. And so there's this symbiotic relationship that's going on right now between the mainline press and the outsiders. And that's driving the story. What's so valuable to you is they are laying out the official story. And knowing that official story provides a roadmap, a blueprint for you and Jody and for others who are interested in pursuing the case to work off of. But there was another nagging thought I kept having as I read every official update from the Times over the course of this investigation. Are the reporters themselves so close to and invested in their relationships with these sources that they have abdicated their roles as skeptical and independent investigators in favor of getting the sources said scoop. Listen to how both Carter and Militesh talked about the investigative ranks where their sources lay when we spoke with them last year. Give me your read on the team, the people that were assigned to the case. I mean, they're all top drawer investigators, every last one of them. You know, Russ Fox, Ron Bone. I just know Ron because I've known, I've been a a reporter here in town forever, and we've all, you know, Ron Bone is a is a terrific investigator. I mean, I don't know if you recall the, you, you may not recall the case, uh, you know, the infamous trench coat bandit that up and down the West Coast for 15 years, Ron chased that guy, finally caught him, you know, and uh, it's, uh, you know, he's a, a tenacious investigator. Russ Fox is a tenacious investigator. All those hey, guys over at SPD are just... Well, you got to remember that there's two people, I believe, on this case who've pretty much been on it since early on. And you think about it, it's just absolutely remarkable that they are still doing it. Yeah, give them some credit. You I know, mean, it's it, one of their own that was killed. And I, I mean, I, I have to believe that they have tried to conduct a very thorough investigation. And I think they've been a little bit behind the eight ball because of the... And it isn't just that the reporters are close to their sources that causes some concern. They are also unusually close to the family of Tom Wales, which would make it very difficult for them to contemplate any of the evidence we have brought forward in this case. Amy, you know, put it in the perspective that her dad believed in justice and he would not have wanted them to prosecute this case unless there was true justice and they were really sure. And I think Mike and I, we sat in an interview, you can tell it was it was emotional. You know, Amy, we become, you know, we see her, talk to her once a year sometimes, you know, usually in social media friends with her, but, you know, we have a conversation with her once a year about, you know, what's going on with the investigation and sometimes it's just a just touch and base but you know uh, she was just a kid when this happened and it was just a real tragedy it was a real tragedy and Tom was an exceptional guy in a lot of ways he wore a white hat he was one of the good guys I think in the perspective of the criminal justice system uh, tried really hard to do the right thing 
You know, it's really sad that it's come this far and it's this long away, and they haven't been able to figure out who killed him. Given the Times' long-standing personal relationships with Tom Whale's family and their federal sources, their coverage was certainly understandable on a human level. But their ability and willingness to amplify the official strategic leaks from an organization that desperately wants to prove it's been working hard and has been right all along can lead to unintended consequences. Something I wanted to explore further with Gelman. I'm a little troubled by that dynamic at play between the press, whether it's the Times or us pushing them going forward, might push them into a decision to indict the wrong person. And they're going to put a lot of pressure on these alleged co-conspirators to flip. Somebody will flip. Now, whether it's true or not, that's going to be a whole other question. Because if they had any evidence at, at this point that there was a connection between these people and their prime suspect, the pilot, we would have already seen an arrest. That's an interesting question. And it's, you know, it really is letting the genie out of the bottle. And in this case, what is worth asking is, as a reporter, as opposed to as a prosecutor, is your responsibility to tell the story and to put the case back into the public discussion? Or is it to control the outcome of the case? And that's something that reporters struggle with all the time. Is it our job to simply report the facts and tell our stories? Or are we also responsible for what happens once those facts and those stories are distributed? Here's what I think, Mitch. I think they have already indicted CG. I think that indictment is the missing entry number one in the Shauna Reed docket. Yeah. They're trying to get him to flip. And they're trying to get both of them to flip on the third man from Sonomish. And one of those three is going to eventually say, yeah, the pilot hired me to go kill this attorney up on the hill. And there's going to be no evidence that that happened other than this testimony. But that'll be enough to indict the pilot. There probably is more pressure than ever right now on the FBI to make an arrest and to close the case. And there's one more role in this system, one more institution that comes back into the play, which is our judicial system and our courts. And ultimately, that's why it is a jury of one's peers who get to decide guilt or innocence. And if everybody plays their role, the press, law enforcement, and the jurors in the court system, then we have the best combination of a path to justice as possible. And that's all we can hope for. And while we could all hope for an outcome of justice, I still harbor doubts about whether the feds are on the right track or whether they are simply bound and determined to prove they have been right. Because even though new investigators are now on the case, we see no evidence that they are following any of the new leads we developed. And although Tom Wales would undoubtedly want justice sought in his own murder, 
Like the FBI, he suffered from the same human shortcoming that seems at play now, as recognized by one of his best friends, Ralph Fasatelli. But if he thought he was right, he would pursue that course as hard as possible, almost to a fault. You think it got him killed? I do. I do. I do. I do. And on that tragic note, we will be back with new developments as warranted. As Jody says, stand by. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake, and original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.